Good morning and welcome to a Tuesday morning, August the 31st edition of the Christian Underground News Network. I'm your host, Kurt Chamberlain, along with your co-host, Pastor Dick Chamberlain, and our special guest on Tuesdays again, Dr. J.B. Hickson. Uh, this morning's subject matter, I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, it, it is kind of a, a reminder topic um, and a timely one. And I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag. I think I'm going to let JB introduce the entire thing. Uh, and because uh, I know he's got quite a bit he wants to share with us about that. And JB, uh, I mean, I'm going to be in the room, but I think, I think for this topic, uh, it, it's one that Pastor Dick loves too. Uh, in, in particular, I'm going to, I'm going to share the, the uh, video and the audio time with Pastor Dick on this one. Okay. So Amen. you see me. If you see me turn the camera to him, you know, I, I'm telling him to go ahead and take it. <laughs> That's great. No, in fact, I, uh, everything I'm going to say today, I learned from Pastor Dick. So if you, uh, if you disagree with it, his email address is dick at, uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I love this topic. We're going to be talking today about why I believe in the pre-trib rapture. Why right. I believe in the pre-trib rapture. And um, to set the stage uh, for our topic, we're going to, of course, we're going to give you the biblical uh, proof of, of the pre-trib rapture. But I want to address um, a common uh, criticism of the rapture that comes up in the circles that, that I tend to travel in. Uh, that is, those that are interested in the end times and that also understand the Luciferian conspiracy and recognize that we are very likely living in the last of the last days. And uh, as you know, there's been a proliferation of people uh, that uh, teach on that thing. It's not new, obviously. Uh, many people have been teaching on this for many years, but uh, within that sort of subset, those who sort of get that we're headed toward troubling times and that it's all at the behest of Satan, there is this prevailing view, uh, and I know a lot of these people, I love them and respect them, and I've shared the platform with them, uh, but they have this prevailing view that anyone who believes in the pre-trib rapture uh, somehow thinks that we are never going to have to suffer, that God's going to rescue us before things get too bad, and, uh, and that, uh, that's kind of the way they characterize those in our camp who believe in a pre-trib rapture. And in case any of them uh, listen to this podcast, either on the Christian Underground News Network or on the Not By Works Ministries channel, I want to put out a plea for them to please listen to what I'm saying uh, here from my heart, because uh, that is simply not the case. I don't know of any dispensational, pre-tribulational scholars who have ever taught or teach today that the rapture rescues us from trouble or from uh, suffering or persecution. And so what I really want my friends uh, who disagree about the preacher rapture to understand is that ultimately, as it relates to the satanic conspiracy and the persecution that's coming and all of the current events that, that we've talked so much about and, and that I address in our ongoing series, What in the World is Going On?, uh, really, as it relates to all that, we're on the same page. We all agree that right. things are getting tough, that we need to have a biblical worldview, that we're getting closer to the return of Christ to establish his long-awaited kingdom. Yep. We all agree that the Antichrist is coming and very likely already alive. Uh, we, we understand that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work among us. We agree on, on almost everything. It's yep. just that we believe, specifically, as we're going to talk about uh, today, that the Bible teaches that there's a particular special seven-year period spelled mm -hmm. out in Scripture, variously referred to as the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, and many other characterizations in the Scriptures. Mm -hmm. There's that specific seven-year period that uh, the church is promised we won't have to go through. And it is a uh, really a climactic time in fulfillment of, of Old Testament prophecy leading up to the Battle of Armageddon and the return of the Messiah to take the throne. And it is indeed the outpouring of God's wrath. And we as, as believers in the present church age, as the body of Christ, 
are promised, we will not never have to face the outpouring of God's wrath. So right. that's all we mean by the pre-trib rapture. I think it's pretty rock solid in scripture. I respect those who disagree and I understand it. But honestly, I believe that most of the uh, people who disagree with a pre-trib rapture do so based on a misunderstanding of it. You know, they've not ever really understood what we mean by that. Nobody teaches that the rapture is some type of get out of jail free card that's going to prevent us from having to suffer. Um, in fact, that, that view is patently, should be patently obvious that it's false, because if you look through the annals of 2,000 years of church history, there have been many times, and including right now today at this very moment, when believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians, are facing unspeakable persecution and martyrdom. Um, so, so nobody is suggesting that somehow we won't have to face that. We certainly hope we don't. And, you know, one of the, the, one of the biblical principles about the rapture is that we are to eagerly anticipate it. We are to desire it. We are to look for it. And so sometimes you'll hear people who believe uh, in a biblical pre-trib rapture talk about, boy, I, you know, I hope he comes today, or I hope he comes before you know, we end up in a one world system, or I hope he comes before the economy collapses. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when we say that, we're not suggesting that we think he will, or that we're promised that he will, or guaranteed that he will. And I think sometimes our opponents who teach a post-trib rapture suggest that that's what we believe. And right. that's, a, that's not accurate, and they need to be fair. Uh, and so I really respect uh, those that you know, hold a, a different view of the rapture. I think they're wrong, but I respect them because in most cases, they really do have a love for the Lord and a love for his word. And they also are one of the few groups out there focusing on end times prophecy. And for that, we are grateful, but I wish yes. that they would, uh, uh, and, and I don't criticize them. I mean, I don't personally attack them or criticize them. I, again, I think they're wrong, but that doesn't mean they're bad people. Uh, but I right. feel like often the opposite is not true. They do tend to disparage. And um, I know there's one uh, very popular talk show host out there in the alt media. Um, uh, I don't know if he's a believer. He may be, but he's not a theological or, you know, biblically minded person, but he's very popular. And, you know, I finally quit listening to him years ago because he, every time he would talk about Christians who believe in the rapture, he was just so caustic and so uh, yeah. downright mean. And, and, and he was, and it was all based on a misunderstanding. And I, I went, wrote him a letter one time and sent him a copy of one of my books. And I said, look, I really appreciate all that you've done to expose uh, the lies that our government tells us and to kind of give people a, a framework of how the world really works. But you're really missing it when it comes to your understanding of what the pre-trib rapture view is. So with that sort of introduction, I, I want to, again, you know, sort of extend a olive branch to those who, who teach a post-trib or even a mid-trib view of the rapture and say, you know, let's look at scripture. Let's let the Bible be our sole source, but, let's, under, but let's understand that we, we absolutely uh, agree that we need to be ready and I spent, you know, my part five of what in the world is going on uh, last week. I the whole session, uh, ninety minutes, was dedicated to preparedness. And uh, right, right. by the way, if you've not uh, watched that series or you're not caught up, all five videos of what in the world is going on are available currently at the Not By Works website, notbyworks.org. Or if you prefer to listen to the audio only, you can see those podcasts at any of your favorite podcast providers, just search for Not By Works Ministries, and you can go back and listen to all five of those. Uh, part six is going to be uh, this Wednesday, tomorrow, I guess that is now. Wow, the week is already well on its way. Um, yes, it so yeah, part six will be tomorrow night, uh, and the title is going to be Can We Trust the Government? And I'm really looking forward to that session. I've already got a lot of material put together. A lot of more work to do on it today and tomorrow, but tomorrow night, six o'clock mountain time, you can live stream that. Just go to notbyworks.org and it's what in the world is going on. Part six, can we trust the government? 
If you're not able to join us by live stream, of course, the podcast and the videos will be available later tomorrow night. Uh, but let's dive into the rapture. Why do I believe in uh, the pre-trib rapture? So let's kind of define our terms. Uh, first of all, the word rapture occurs in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when it says uh, that we will be caught up to meet the Lord together in the air. And that word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. I'm sure our listeners understand the Bible was not written originally in English, and uh, it was written originally in Greek in the New Testament. And uh, when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord revealed to him that there would be this mystery uh, that is a catching up, harpazo, a rescue uh, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And uh, later on, when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he chose the word rapere, meaning rapture, uh, to translate harpazo. So, that's, so it is a biblical term. Sometimes you'll hear people say the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, technically speaking, no English word is in the Bible. The Bible wasn't written in English. But we do right. use English words to translate the original language of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And rapture certainly is in the Bible. Uh, it's the Greek word uh, harpazo. So it refers to the sudden catching up of church-age believers to meet the Lord uh, in the air. And uh, when that happens, uh, the, all believers will be off the earth. And a certain period of time after that, the Antichrist will rise to global prominence, sign a treaty, according to Daniel 9.27, that uh, guarantees uh, that Israel will be safe and in the land. And when he signs that treaty, that starts the clock ticking on the final seven-year period that was outlined in Daniel chapter 9. So um, during that time of the tribulation, that seven-year period, the church will be with the Lord in the air. We will experience the fulfillment of other prophecies uh, that are not connected to the earth, like uh, the marriage of the Lamb, the, the Bema judgment, those types of things, the judgment seat of Christ. But we will come back with Christ at the end of the tribulation, according to Revelation 19, writing with him to set up and establish the long-awaited earthly kingdom. And yeah. uh, we will serve with him, we will reign with him, and it will be a glorious time uh, in the messianic uh, kingdom. So the rapture is the next great prophetic event uh, to which the world looks forward. And that's just a longer way to say that the Bible teaches the doctrine of imminency. Imminency, yes. Imminency. Mm -hmm. And right. uh, we, we have a, a DVD or a downloadable video on our online store called The Doctrine of Imminency that proves biblically, uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this doctrine is accurate. But imminency, by the way, it's I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-Y, imminency. Uh, sometimes people, there's several other words that sound the same, but uh, that's what we mean. It is imminent, meaning it can happen at any time. Uh, mm -hmm. There's nothing pre, you know, that has to come before it. There's no prelude to the rapture, prophetically speaking. Uh, it is the next event. And so... We've talked many times about how, and or I have, and I'm sure we have on our uh, my guest appearances here, uh, that 16%, roughly speaking, of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. Right. And so, uh, by the way, any, any church that ignores end times prophecy is part of what I call the 84% club. And that is, they're only teaching 84% of the Bible. So if you're going to a church that's not teaching the end times, uh, especially these days, um, then you're yeah. part of the 84% club and you need to find a church that's uh, part of the 100% club that teaches the whole counsel of God. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, the rapture is, starts that final 16% of Bible prophecy into fulfillment. It sort of is the kickstart that everything will begin to unfold then in rapid succession uh, after that. Uh, so, uh, you know, the rapture brings an end to the church age, and it, uh, it certainly brings with it many uh, blessings for believers in the present age. We obviously will get our glorified bodies at that Yay. point. First Yay. Yeah, my, my, my knees are going to be singing hallelujah. <laughs> 
my whole body will be singing hallelujah. Let me tell you, Dick, uh, it's the older I get, uh, the more I understand the principle of glorification. But uh, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, this mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruption. Romans 8. Uh, so that's one blessing. We'll meet the Lord in the air. Certainly that's an incredible blessing to see our Savior face to face. We'll have a reunion with our loved ones who are believers who died before us. Uh, we'll receive rewards at the Bema judgment. In fact, one of the last things Jesus said in scripture, Revelation 22, 12, is that, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Yeah. And, uh, and that's not talking about heaven because he says in that verse, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his works. And of course, we know very clearly from comparing scripture with scripture that we are not saved uh, by works. We're saved no. by grace. So okay. what he's talking about there is the rewards that we store up in heaven for uh, a life of faithful service here on earth. Uh, and then another blessing that we'll receive, as I mentioned already, is the marriage of the lamb. So uh, the key passages on the rapture, of course, are 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, John 14. John 14 is very interesting because in John 14, mm -hmm. that's the upper room, uh, the very night that our Lord was betrayed by Judas in the garden. And it's yeah. in that uh, upper room experience that Jesus, for the first time ever, uh, reveals or hints at this doctrine of yeah. the rapture. Because see, what people need to understand is the rapture, since it relates to the church, and the church was a mystery, the church was never mentioned in the Old Testament, it was New Testament truth, uh, so too with the rapture, it was never mentioned in the Old Testament. So obviously those who disagree with the pre-trib rapture view believe there's only one return of Christ, that the rapture yeah. and the second coming are the same event. And every passage in the New Testament that deals with the return of Christ at the end of the age is always talking about the same thing. But uh, as we talk about why I believe in the preacher rapture, the, the first thing I want to do is kind of compare Scripture with Scripture and show you why those, th those two events, the second coming and the rapture, cannot be referring to the same thing. The, the biblical text itself precludes that because the details are vastly different. Um, but back to John 14, um, you know, the, Jesus, uh, that, you know, all that was when that was Thursday night of Passion Week before he was betrayed in the garden. Then, of course, arrested, tried, crucified and laid in the tomb by Friday, all yeah. very hastily in a kangaroo court. Um, uh, and of course, let me hasten to add all according to God's divine plan uh, of redemption. But uh, in any event, it's at that moment when he's having that intimate discussion with his disciples around the table that he reminds them that, look, if I go away, I promise you I'm going to come back and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Amen. And notice he does not say that where you are, I may be also <laughs> because... Uh, He's not talking about the second coming there where he's going to come back to earth, set up his kingdom in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's talking about going away. And he says, if I go away, i.e. to heaven, to the right hand of the throne of God, he says, I promise I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am in heaven, you may be also. So John 14, at least chronologically, is the earliest reference to the rapture anywhere in scripture. And it's the only reference to the rapture in any of the gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not ever even hint at the rapture. Um, often people try to insert the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, which is the teaching that Jesus gave the day before the upper room on Wednesday of Passion Week from atop the Mount of Olives. That's why we call it the Olivet Discourse. And he, in the Olivet Discourse, is uh, teaching about uh, the second coming. And he's answering the question of uh, the believing Jews, mainly the disciples at that moment, uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, well, uh, the, the Olivet Discourse is all about the second coming, and co the context is very clear there. We have an eight-video series, by the way, extensive 
verse by verse treatment of the Olivet Discourse that's available also at notbyworks.org. Just click on the store and you can get that as a download or a DVD. But um, but anyway, so you know the rapture was not even on the radar anywhere in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it was still in the mind of God. It had not been unveiled yet. And it wasn't until the next day in the upper room that for the first time we begin to see uh, a reference to a two-phased uh, return of Christ. Right. And so um, I want to describe for our listeners some differences uh, between uh, the rapture and the second coming. But before I do, because this is another objection that a lot of our uh, brothers and sisters who disagree with the pre-trib rapture raise, I want to dispel the myth that they teach or they suggest that you know the rapture is never found in church history until you get to Darby in the in the 19th century, yeah. and that is just patently provably false. Yeah. Uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Tommy Ice, has written extensively about this in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, he's a leading scholar on pre-tribulationism. He runs the Pre-Trib Research Center which, by the way, I've had the privilege of speaking at a few times, and I'll be speaking again this year at the pre-trib conference in Dallas in December, and I'll be speaking, uh, uh, you know, on uh, one minute before the second coming. I'm going to be talking about basically what life will look like after seven years of tribulation, but, um, but anyway, uh, Dr. Tommy Ice has shown, and I also kind of had to do some research uh, years ago during my PhD studies of ancient literature, and it is uh, easily uh, shown that there, throughout history in every uh, century from the first century forward, there was a remnant that believed, taught, and wrote about a two-phased return of Christ. Absolutely. Once for his church and then coming again to establish his kingdom. So we don't prove doctrine based on uh, church history or extra biblical literature. But I only bring that up because it's a response to the ignorant, and I mean that in the lexical meaning of the word, not as a personal attack, in the ignorant yeah. argument of non, uh, those who don't believe in the pre-trib rapture, who suggests that, you know, you never find the pre-trib teaching anywhere in church history until Darby. That's simply not true. Um, so uh, the rapture, uh, if, we if we look at all of the passages in the New Testament that deal with the return of Christ, what we notice is if when, when, it, when the passage is dealing with the rapture, he's coming to receive the church in the air, Amen. whereas in the second coming passages like Matthew 24, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, he's coming all the way to the earth. Right. Uh, number two, the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time, whereas the second coming very clearly is preceded by numerous specific detailed prophecies. You cannot have the second coming until you've had the Antichrist, for example. You cannot have the second coming until you've had the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments or the abomination of desolation or the battle of Armageddon or the two witnesses or the 144,000 missionaries and so on and so on. So the, the Bible has a great deal to say about the events leading up to the second coming. In fact, the entire teaching of Jesus uh, on the Mount of Olives in the Olivet Discourse is giving signs of events and circumstances that will take place prior to the second coming. Yeah. So that's another contrast. The rapture is imminent, and it speaks of that in, in, the, in the rapture passages, uh, and the second coming is not. Uh, we also mentioned that the, sec the rapture is a mystery, meaning it was newly revealed truth in the New Testament, whereas the second coming is very prominently predicted in the Old Testament. Um, at the rapture, uh, the church is the primary focus, whereas at the second coming, Israel is the primary focus. Uh, here's one big distinction. Uh, the rapture is a source of comfort for believers. Right? Yes. The yeah. second coming is a warning of judgment for unbelievers. Yeah. So let's think about this for a moment. Um, all of the passages that deal with the rapture, such as 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, mm -hmm. end with a note of comfort and encouragement. For example, it says, therefore, comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians right. 4, 18. So 
if the rapture, as some suppose, does not happen until after the tribulation, and in order to get to the rapture, you're going to have to go through all of the horrific events outlined in Scripture that, that happened during the tribulation. How in the world is that a message of comfort? Um, it, so my friend, yeah, my friend uh, Dave Reagan, who uh, I've had the privilege of sharing the platform with at many conferences, uh, and I really respect him. I don't agree with him on some things. He tends to uh, identify with some of the more, I think, radical end times teachers uh, and think highly of them and promote them. Um, but he's a godly man, and he's certainly a key yeah. leader in the pre-trib movement. But he, uh, I heard him say one time, and it was really funny, it stuck with me, I've used it many times, that, you know, for those who believe in a post-trib rapture, then essentially what they are, are, are putting in Paul's mouth, what they are suggesting that the Apostle Paul is saying is that something to the effect of, dear church, you are about to face unspeakable, horrific persecution. You're going to be martyred, beheaded. You're going to have massive locusts and hailstorms and poison water. One third of the earth is going to die. Then one quarter of the earth is going to die. There's going to be earthquakes like never before seen on the earth. There's going to be periods of darkness when the sun is completely blotted out, complete cosmic disturbances and terrible persecution from the beast and the, and the false prophet. And this is going to go on for at least seven years. So, dear church, comfort one another with those words. Yeah. I mean, what, what's yeah. comforting about that? <laughs> Not one thing, JB. <laughs> so uh, we need to see that that's a clear distinction. The rapture is about comfort. It's called the blessed hope uh, and uh, not the blessed judgment. Uh, but the second coming is a time of judgment. Uh, another distinction is the rapture is only for believers, uh, whereas at the second coming, as Jesus plainly spells out in the sheep and the goats judgment, everyone on earth will be affected, uh, believers and unbelievers. Um, uh, the rapture is followed immediately by the seven-year tribulation. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the second coming is followed by the uh, millennium. And then, uh, and I shouldn't say immediately, there will be a little bit of a gap of time in there. Uh, the scripture spells out a gap of time between the second coming and the official start of the thousand year millennium in uh, Daniel 12, I think it is. Uh, yeah. But the uh, tribulation, we also know there'll be a slight gap after the rapture before the official start of the tribulation. But in any event, prophetically it's a, speaking, it's a 75 day gap, isn't it? Yeah, 75 days. And I think that's uh, Daniel 12, if I'm remembering right. Yes, yeah, uh, sir. Okay. So, uh, yeah, and we don't know what that's for. Um, it, we can yeah. speculate that it's to clean up all of the uh, bloodshed and devastation following Armageddon, uh, but that's just speculation. Um, right. So, um, at the rapture, there's no judgment of sin. In fact, Jesus plainly says uh, that if we believe in him, we pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment, uh, John 5, 24. Um, whereas the second coming is all about judgment. Jesus yeah. himself said, when the Son of Man comes and all his holy angels with him, then he shall sit on the throne of his glory and he shall separate the sheep from the goats and judge those uh, based on whether they have believed the gospel or not. Um, yeah. So... Um, Obviously, at the rapture, the church is taken into the Lord's presence. At the second coming, all believers are brought into the millennium to rule and reign uh, with Christ, at least church-age believers. Those believers on earth, at the end of the tribulation, believers we're talking about, they will enter the millennium, as Jesus said. Uh, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Um, at the rapture, the physical bodies of believers are raised to life, resurrected, whereas at the second coming, the physical bodies of the unbelievers are sent to the grave. They're, they're, they are you know, cast into the lake of fire, and their bodies are, just, are sent to the grave. Uh, obviously, the purpose of the rapture is to rescue, whereas the purpose of the second coming is to judge. So those are just some obvious uh, contrasts, and if you if you conflate those together, as uh -huh. post tribulationists do, yep. then you are really left with some very difficult 
both logical and exegetical uh, problems. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So what I'd like to do next is sort of address the arguments of uh, some of the opposing views, like the post-tribulation view. Yeah. So uh, here are their arguments. Again, I've studied this at the highest levels for many, many years. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to be fair to them and accurate, but obviously in a short uh, time that we have together, I can't give a full-length book treatment of this. In my in my eschatology book uh, called What Lies Ahead, A Biblical Overview of the End Times, I have a chapter on the rapture in which I go into a little more detail with each of the opposing views and explain you know, why I believe they're not accurate. But post-tribulationists argue that, as I mentioned already, there's no pre-tribulation view in history. That's easily disprovable. That's verifiably false. Um, so they're wrong there. They suggest that the wheat and the tares teaches post-trib, and right. uh, that's just not the case at all. I mean, uh, wheat and tares just shows that the kingdom, as, as we lead up to the kingdom and even ultimately during the thousand years of the earthly, the old earthly kingdom, there's going to be a mixture of unbelievers and believers in the kingdom. Um, yeah. And that includes today, that includes the tribulation, and that includes the, the kingdom uh, oh, up yeah. until the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so that's just a, a misunderstanding. I think they're bringing their uh, view to the uh, Wheat and Tares parable of the kingdom there and making it say what they wanted to say. Um, another argument they put forth is that they say the Bible does not teach imminency. Again, I've demonstrated very uh, in a rock solid format that the Bible does, in fact, teach the doctrine of imminency. It's a foundational doctrine. Um, and by the way, Jesus, for those who don't believe in the rapture, or they think it's the same thing as the second coming, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Jesus essentially equates his own resurrection with the doctrine of the rapture. So yes, I always like to point that out. Um, if you don't believe in the rapture, uh, you're putting into question the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, and that's, that's what the Bible teaches, you know, 1 Thess 4. Um, so they're simply wrong when they say the Bible does not teach imminency. Um, uh, if we have time, I can go into more uh, reasons why the Bible teaches imminency. But I've, as I said, I've done that in my video, The Doctrine of Imminency. Uh, they also say that the church is promised tribulation. Well, again, I completely agree. Uh, Jesus yeah. told the disciples in the upper room the same time that he explained uh, or at least introduced the notion of the rapture that in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's but right. just because there will be tribulation does not mean that the church will go through the tribulation, right. uh, the 70th week of Daniel, the great day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, the time of Jacob's trouble, and so on and so forth. So they're confusing the seven-year prophetic period of the outpouring of God's wrath, as uh, predicted in the Old and New Testaments, with just general persecution. Right. So um, they're, they're confusing the specific eschatological event with a, with a normal uh, generalization. Absolutely. In fact, from the first century on, every one of the disciples was martyred uh, and faced, you know, under Nero's reign or soon thereafter, uh, incredible persecution. And throughout church history, believers have been right. persecuted. And you know, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So we've received no promise that we won't, that we'll escape all persecution and all tribulation and all trouble. We, right. we, we're going to go through some. Absolutely. And so when, when, when one of their arguments, talking about post-tribulationists here, is that the church has promised tribulation, they're putting that argument forth within the context of their mistaken notion of what pre-tribulationists teach. So yeah. they're, they're making an argument or they're answering a, a point that no one is making. <laughs> and, and so making right. their argument goes like this. All oh, those silly pre-tribulationists teach that the church will, it'll all be roses and lollipops until Jesus comes and they'll never have to suffer. And then, the, and then to respond to that false view, uh, they say, but the Bible teaches you know, the church will face tribulation. Well, we agree, and we're not saying we won't. So it's, it's again, it's a, it's a, uh, 
you know, a, a red herring. Um, then, uh, the, of course, they teach that Daniel 9 was fulfilled in church history. Well, uh, that's easily uh, dismissed because if you look at the context of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, he gives us a 490-year prophecy, uh, right. and he spells out specifically when the clock starts ticking on that 490-year plan and when it will end. And in his own text in Daniel 9, he breaks it up into the first 483 years. That's right. And it began with the decree of Artaxerxes, uh, March 15, 444 BC. And yep. it ended again uh, 483 years later uh, at the coming of Messiah, is what the uh, text says. But if you do the math, a prophetic year in the Hebrew calendar was 360 days. So if you multiply 360 days times 483 years, you come up with 173,880 days. If you start counting forward in time from the exact date of the decree of Artaxerxes that Daniel sets as the beginning point, you arrive, at least according to uh, the most reliable uh, scholarly uh, dating of the first century uh, done by the late Harold Honer, who was the world's expert in, in uh, the apostolic age, uh, you arrive precisely at the triumphal entry when Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in fulfillment of scripture. So the point is, Daniel's 490-year prophecy was fulfilled to the day, and, yeah. and we can prove that. So when post-tribulationists say that the final seven years of that prophecy were fulfilled spiritually or metaphorically or figuratively, they are making a gross error in hermeneutics yes. because, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't arbitrarily pull out seven years of a 490-year prophecy and say, well, even though the first 483 were taken literally and meant literally, somehow the final seven were just one big metaphor. And yeah. so they're really, that gets into a hermeneutical problem. But uh, just to show you the links to which they will go to show that that seven year, seven final seven years of Daniel's prophecy were fulfilled, quote, in church history. You know, if you look at what he says will happen in that final seven years, um, one of those things at the end of it is the return of Christ. And they actually believe, many of them, that in a figurative sense, Christ returned at uh, in 70 AD. And it was, you know, symbolized with the clouds over Jerusalem after the Roman general Titus burned the city. And particularly, um, you know, the uh, preterists and, and, and partial preterists uh, hold that view. But in any event, they, they're really straining at gnats to try to show somehow that Daniel's prophecy has already been fulfilled. Uh, but a literal, grammatical, historical, consistently normal view of Scripture shows that that can't possibly be uh, the case. Agreed, yeah. And then uh, their final argument is they try to merge together all resurrections uh, yeah. based on Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, and say that believers of all ages are resurrected at the same time. But that's uh, not what Revelation 20 verses four and five mean. In fact, let me, uh, let me read that for you. And so I'll kind of tell you the way they say it. But in Revelation 20, verse four, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for his word. Uh, who's that? Well, that's talking about the martyrs in the tribulation who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Well, you know, one of the big problems that we run into with the post-trib and the mid-trib view is yeah. they're comparing scripture with scripture. And they, they really make a hermeneutical mistake. And you see it evidenced here when they say, when the text says first resurrection, they yeah. assume that means first one ever, uh, and that's just patently 
<laughs> disprovable. I mean, it's not talking about the first one ever. It's talking about the first one in this sequence of resurrections. Uh, so we know prior to this resurrection spoken of in Revelation 20, verse 5, that there are historically many resurrections already yeah. that have taken place. Uh, yeah. Obviously, the resurrection of our Lord, but you know, they, they'll say, well, that's just the resurrection of the Lord. That, that, that's special. That's in a class by itself. Okay, well, what about all the token resurrections that occurred at the same time? What about Lazarus? And then what about Lazarus? Exactly. Yeah, cool. So, yeah. but, you know, you see a sort of a widespread resurrection, in, according to the gospel accounts, that occurred. It's rather bizarre and inexplicable, and we don't really know what to make of it, except that it's a foreshadowing of what's going to come someday. But there were bodies of people resurrected at the same time as the resurrection of our Lord. So, so they're, when, they, when they make a big deal about uh, you know, all bodies, uh, all, all believers being resurrected at the same time, uh, that's simply not true. The Bible tells us that the church age believers will be raptured at, I mean, will be resurrected at the rapture, because Paul said the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their physical bodies, wherever they may be, uh, any believer who's died in the last 2000 years or been cremated or been lost at sea or, you know, lost hiking in the mountains of Colorado and left for, you know, vultures to pick apart the physical bodies. However long ago it's been, the very atoms of their physicality, the very atoms of their bodies will be reconstituted to meet their souls that are already in heaven, and they will be given a glorified body uh, for all of eternity. Uh, because Paul says the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So when the new heavens and the new earth come into place and the kingdom continues on in perpetuity, at that point, everyone will have a glorified body and believers of the church age get theirs at the rapture. Uh, believers from the Old Testament age and believers from the tribulation age who died during the tribulation, they will get theirs at the second coming, according to uh, Daniel uh, 12, and I think it's Isaiah uh, 26. I can't remember exactly, but Daniel 12 for sure speaks of that resurrection. So, uh, so there. So those are some of their arguments. Uh, again, I'm, I'm. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm trying to just quickly give you the talking points that show each of their arguments are not accurate. Um, but uh, there's also the mid-tribulation view, <clears throat> and the mid-tribulation view uh, is even easier to debunk yes. uh, because it suggests that the church will be raptured, that they, they agree with us that there's a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church and then once for uh, to come all the way to the earth to establish the kingdom. <clears throat> Where we disagree is they don't understand the distinction between Israel and the church. Oh boy. And, and they put the church in the, the tribulation and say that we're going to be rescued midway through. And their arguments are that, you know, Revelation 11 pictures the rapture, uh, the two witnesses there. That's not the case. That's again, that's they would be spiritualizing the text to say that. It's actually yeah. talking about the two witnesses. Yeah. Um, the, the biggest argument for the mid-tribu suffers from the same hermeneutical error that the post-tribbers do when it comes to resurrections, and that is they see the seventh trumpet of the trumpet judgments in the tribulation. Remember, God's wrath is poured out in the form of seven seals that are opened, and each one has a different judgment. Uh, seven trumpets that are sounded, each one announcing a different judgment of God's wrath, and then seven bowls, each containing uh, judgments of God's wrath. So when you get to the seventh trumpet, they equate that to the trumpet, the last trump that's supposedly sounding, uh, that will sound at the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, and I'll read it, says this, uh, again, uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will, will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So what you have here is 
two separate references to a trumpet and mid-tribulationists equate them and say they're both talking about the same thing. But again, there's no uh, textual or contextual justification to equate those trumpets. You know, the Bible is filled with trumpets at key moments in history. I mean, nobody suggests the rapture happened at the Battle of Jericho. There were a lot of trumpets there. Um, And uh, so, you know, they're just, you know, most often error in interpretation comes into play in the in the synthesis level when you're comparing scripture with scripture. And uh, and that's what's happening uh, here. So there's a trumpet at the rapture. There's a trumpet that represents one of the judgments of God is specifically there are seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is sounded, and it unveils seven more judgments of bowls. Is the way it works in Revelation. So uh, that's uh, that's really their whole argument. Kind of hinges on that, and uh, and if you can if you can sort of show them that there's no internal evidence in the Bible that suggests that those trumpets are referring to the same time period, then their whole argument falls apart. Um, they also make some of the same arguments that post-tribbers do, uh, such as the Bible does not teach imminency. Well, that's simply uh, verifiably false. I can prove it doctrinally that the Bible does teach imminency. Um, and uh, they also uh, make the same argument that the church has promised tribulation. Well, we've already talked about that. It doesn't mean they're going to go through the 70th week of Daniel. Um, and another big point that they make is that they they agree with us that the church is is not going to face the wrath of god right so because they teach that the church will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation they then have to do hermeneutical gymnastics to make it uh, teach that the first three and a half years do not constitute the wrath of god and in order for them to do that they have to teach that the seals and trumpets are not the wrath only the bowls are the wrath Ooh, yeah and and they put the seal and trumpets in the first half of the tribulation now yeah. first of all it's it's certainly not a slam dunk that the trumpets occur in the first half uh the bible is somewhat ambiguous yeah. on the exact timing we know the seals are in the first half yeah. the first seal is the antichrist uh, and, and we know it starts at the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, but different, even dispensational pre-tribulation scholars uh, differ on where the trumpets are. Are they the first half or the second half? Yeah. Um, you know, I put them in uh, the second half. Uh, that's and, what I would think also is in the second half. Yeah. So, so I only bring that up because, uh, of course, they could be in the first half. But in order for the mid-tribulation view to be correct they have to be in the first half and they have to also not be the wrath of God. Now here's the problem with that. When the sealed judgments are poured out at the beginning of the seven year tribulation, revelation six plainly tells us that the people are already crying out, hide us from the wrath of God. That's right. So the seal and trumpets are both the wrath. And I don't know how they get around that in, uh, Revelation chapter six, because, you know, plainly says the, the wrath of God's being poured out. Uh, and then, of course, they teach uh, that the tribulation itself will only be three and a half years. Well, right. that's, that's just, again, they, they don't understand Daniel nine uh, and the terminology in Revelation clearly spells it out that there will be seven years uh, not three and a half years. There's definitely a distinction between the first half and the second half and the midpoint, uh, the dividing point between the first and second halves of the tribulation is the abomination of desolation. But yeah, right. the, 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 uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel was a 490 year prophecy, not a 486 and a half year prophecy. So it's uh, it's a 490 year prophecy. So, uh, so that's that view. Uh, there's also a what's called a partial rapture view, yes. uh, which is really uh, messed up because of its basically its soteriology. But they essentially say that uh, you know only those who are watching for the rapture 
will experience it. And so people will be raptured at various points of time throughout the tribulation. Like they believe there's going to be one big rapture at the end of the church age, but then the rest of the church isn't going to be raptured until they look up. And that's just right. a misunderstanding and a misinterpretation of several passages that talk about watchfulness. Yeah. Uh, like when it says to those who are looking for him, he will, uh, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear, uh, that kind of a thing. Uh, but that, that's not intended to be a, if then statement, like you have to be looking in fact, right. in first Thessalonians five. And I talked about this uh, last week in my uh, part five of what in the world's going on. It explicitly tells us that whether you're watching for him or not watching for him, you're still going to be rescued. So right. we, we are supposed to watch for him and we ought to all be, you know, looking for the blessed hope, eagerly awaiting our savior, but whether you do or not has no bearing on the rapture. And then yeah. uh, finally, and how are we doing on time? Uh, we are, we're getting close, JB, but I think six or seven minutes. Okay, good. So uh, I just want to give one other false view before we then uh, kind of conclude that the pre-tribulation view is the biblical view. But the, the fourth false view, so we had post-trib, mid-trib, partial, and then you've got the what's called the pre-wrath view that was popularized by Marvin Rosenthal. And again, it all hinges, and by the way, that was around 1990, but it all hinges uh, on the assumption that the day of the Lord, uh, which is one of the Old Testament terms uh, and New Testament, by the way, for the seven-year tribulation, that the term day of the Lord means the 18 months at the very end of the tribulation. Yeah. So the pre-wrath view yeah. suggests that the wrath of God does not start until you get to the bold judgments, and those don't start until the second half of the second half of the tribulation. So it really becomes you, you need a calculator to understand the pre-wrath view because you got a lot of uh, halves of halves in there. Um, but uh, there have been some excellent uh, debunking of Marv Rosenthal's views out there, uh, but it's the simplest way to understand his error is, again, he associates the wrath only with the bold judgments when the book of Revelation tells us that it, the entire seven years is wrath. The wrath begins right. with the, the uh, uh, seal judgments at the beginning. So, and that leads us then to the pre-trib view. And very quickly, the pre-trib view, uh, as I said, is the view that the church uh, is promised that we will not have to go through the day of the Lord's wrath, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. The day of the Lord's wrath encompasses the entire seven-year period, the entire 70th week of Daniel. The Old Testament prophets refer to that seven-year period as the great day of the Lord's wrath. And uh, so we can prove that the entire, that the wrath of God begins at the beginning of the seven years, not at some later point, because if you understand the argument in the book of Revelation, chapters four and five are a theodicy. A theodicy is a, a justification for God's actions, a justification in this case for the wrath of God. And they are crying out, who is worthy to open the seals? Yep. And they say, the lamb, he is worthy because he was slain. He shed his blood. And so Christ opens the seals of God's judgment. Well, why do you need to spend two chapters justifying the wrath of God if the wrath of God isn't going to happen for many more years later? Yep. So it flows in a literary sense right into, you know, chapters four and five. You know, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath? Chapter six or, and, and chapters four and five answer that question. The lamb was slain. And then chapter six, the wrath begins, and they're already hiding from the wrath of God by the end of chapter six. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's, uh, you know, the pre-trib rapture basically all hinges on understanding the nature of God's wrath, uh, that uh, we are never, we shall never face the wrath of God as believers. Yeah. That's one of the blessings of eternal salvation. Yeah. Uh, and I think that makes it, you know, abundantly clear. Uh, and it, it, since the tribulation is the wrath of God, we know the church must be raptured before the tribulation. 
Um, again, we here at the Christian Underground News Network agree with that. JB, we, we we also subscribe to the pre-trib rapture viewpoint. Absolutely, well, I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, the uh, Christian Underground News Network and uh, Curtis Chamberlain and Dick. Uh, agree with me and Jesus. That makes me feel good. So, uh, so but there's some other points that I think uh, also are rather weighty uh, proofs. But uh, again, nothing really, you know, it can be more can be stronger than the fact that the seven years is the wrath of God and the church has promised that we will be rescued before the wrath. Uh, but also you could look at things like the, the, the nature of the tribulation is totally Jewish. Um, yeah, it's, it the, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Yes. Daniel says that this, this prophecy is for your people and your holy city, or God told Daniel it was for your city and, 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 and your holy city and your people. Um, the missionaries that are uh, out there uh, during the seven years spreading the gospel are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, yeah, right. the, the Olivet Discourse makes it clear that this is all about uh, Israel. And the Old Testament descriptions uh, make clear the Jewish nature of the tribulation. So, you know, the church going into the tribulation would be a category confusion. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you, you also have the literary structure of the book of Revelation that indicates the church is not present once the seals begin. So yeah. you see... The church mentioned frequently in chapters two and three, then it moves on to, okay, what gives God the right to do what he's about to do, which is fulfill Daniel's prophecy of wrath. And yeah. from that point on, chapter four, on, you never see the church mentioned. Uh, again, I wouldn't hang my hat on that argument, but it's a cumulative case, that, and it's a pretty strong one. Yeah. Um, uh, also, agree. the mystery concept of the church makes a pre-tribulation rapture a necessity. The church yeah. is a temporary interruption in God's program with Israel and yeah. previously un unknown, but revealed in the new Testament. And since the church has no place historically in the first 69 weeks of Daniel or the first 483 years, why would right. it have any place in the 70th week or the final seven years? That's uh, logical. Yeah. So, uh, and then lastly, and, and we're, I know we're out of coming up on the end here, uh, but I have, uh, written a paper, uh, and it was in, uh, in a journal. I can't remember which one, uh, but I'm happy to send it to people. Or if you're already a subscriber to the premium content on our website, you can just look it up in the end time section. But Second Thessalonians 2, in my view, explicitly teaches a pre-trib rapture view. Yes. And this passage has been widely uh, misinterpreted, I believe, uh, innocently so through the years, but it all hinges on the Greek word apostasia. Uh -huh. Apostasia is the Greek word that means departure. And uh, it, it, it over time, came to be associated with a spiritual departure, that is falling away from the faith. But it does right. not always mean that. In fact, it is used frequently, in the verb form anyway, uh, to refer to a physical departure. And I make this case in uh, the uh, journal article, uh, but the, the issue at hand in Second Thess 2 is, are we in the day of the Lord or not? The right. Thessalonians, you know, they had been taught by Paul in his first letter that they would be rescued before the day of the Lord, First Thess uh, 1, 10 and 5, 9, and yet facing the persecution that they were, like, frankly, like many Bible teachers today, end times Bible teachers, they looked around and said, oh, I, somehow we missed the rapture. We're already in the day of the Lord. And Paul assures them in 2 Thess 2 that the day of the Lord could not be there yet because the departure had not happened and the man of sin had not been unveiled. So he right. gives them two signs to show, nope, you can't be in the tribulation. One of them is the departure. Now, that was never translated falling away in our English Bibles until, you know, more recently. It was always understood as a departure. That's what apostasia means, and context yeah. has to determine a meaning. Uh, yeah. And so I believe that's a reference to the rapture. Basically, he's saying, you know, you can't be in the tribulation because the rapture hasn't happened and the Antichrist hasn't been unveiled. Well, those right. are the next two things comparing Scripture with Scripture yeah. that we know are going to happen. 
the rapture is going to happen, then the Antichrist will be unveiled, then the tribulation starts in that order. Absolutely. So I believe that Second Thess 2 really demands uh, a pre-tribulation rapture view, and many uh, of my colleagues in the pre-tribulation uh, uh, realm, uh, such as Dr. Tommy Ice uh, and Dr. Andy Woods, agree. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, I guess we'll leave it there. Uh, I would encourage you to Kind of do your own research. Don't just believe it because I said it, but hopefully I've given you some really, uh, at the very least, thought-provoking uh, biblical arguments as to why we believe the Bible teaches a pre-trib rapture. You have, and thank you, JB. And you know, also, Pastor Dick brought up something uh, in our discussions and in, in, in our discussions about this subject matter many times uh, that the rapture obviously has a, a primary purpose, and that is to take the church uh, out, that uh, we're, we're not we're not subject to the day of the wrath of God in that case, and and uh, but it also has a secondary purpose that that he thinks uh, that it's going to act as the sign to the Jews to go back to repatriate to Israel. What do yeah. you think? Yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because uh, this past Sunday in, in my nine o'clock hour at Plum Creek Chapel in the Denver area, I, uh, I did part 30 in my ongoing series, What Lies Ahead, which is just a basic overview of the end times. And I talked a lot about the regathering of Israel in the land. And I talked about how the regathering in 1948 after uh, World War II does not constitute the biblical fulfillment of the regathering because right. they're right. not there in belief. They're there in unbelief. There and, unbelief. and secondly, uh, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, uh, as Jesus very plainly says in Matthew 24, 31, will be supernatural. He's going to supernaturally gather them into land. But I taught, I said the same thing that, that Dick did. Uh, that is that once the rapture happens, the, the one of the purposes of the tribulation uh, is to engender that return, and people are going to start, you know, coming back, and and then and then once they once at the midpoint when the antichrist breaks the treaty and declares yeah. himself to be God, then they're going to you know flee in horror and be heading away from the city. But for the first three and a half years after the rapture. I do believe there's going to be a geographic return back to Jerusalem. Because the Jew, I mean, Jesus, you know, I mean, the scriptures plainly say that the, the Jews require a sign. Yeah. And, yeah. And the Gentiles seek after wisdom. Right. So, so that's probably going to be the sign to them that, uh oh, let's go back. Well, yeah, Pastor says it's a flatheaded moment for them. They, uh oh, the, the hand hits the forehead and they say, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe those Christians had it right, and we better get back home. I think you're exactly right. I think it is going to be the sign, and, and you know, Paul tells us in Romans 11 that one of the purposes of the church age is to provoke Israel to jealousy. I Absolutely. think they're going, they're going to see uh, the rapture, see that blessed hope take place and fulfilled, and yep. then that's going to, as you said, prompt them to say, oh, this is true. It's time to, time to come back to Yahweh. Yes. Yes. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, JB, thank you again for yes, uh, a scintillating and enthralling hour. I think we might've gone a little bit over, but so what? <laughs> great information. And, and it's a great subject to talk about. We, we, we love it. We love his return. That's why we love to talk about it. And uh, that's something that even in days like today, when there's so much chaos and confusion and and worry out there in the world, it's so much more precious to think about and to look forward to, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And uh, I really appreciate your time. I want to remind people before you uh, sign off here to tune in tomorrow night to notbyworks.org for part six of what in the world is going on, which is can we trust the government? And then uh, just wanted to remind uh, listeners to sign up for our newsletter at notbyworks.org because that's the way you can kind of be alerted anytime we post a new podcast or video or other resources. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thanks again. It's such an honor to spend uh, my Tuesday mornings with you guys. And I uh, hope it's, 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 our, uh, it's our honor and pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks again. I look forward to next, uh, next Tuesday. If, 
if uh, we're still here, you never know. The rapture's imminent, right? Uh, if the doctrine of imminency is true, which it is, you never do know. Do That's right. Amen. All Amen. right. Well, at, at any event, uh, we will we'll be looking forward to it happening whenever it happens. And, and until then, we'll uh, we'll just work until Jesus comes. Amen. 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 All right. Thank you again for being with us, JB. We really appreciate it. And um, we hope uh, that our listeners have been blessed by what they heard today. Hey, so be sure and tune in uh, this Saturday morning. And then again, Saturday night for uh, one of our newer guests, uh, Lucas Doremus, Christian author and uh, brilliant young fellow. We, we love him to death. And, uh, oh, you know him too, JB, don't you? Absolutely. Lucas is a dear friend. And uh, you're right. He's definitely... Uh, brilliant. If I had his looks and his brains, uh, I'd be okay. Let me just say that. So. <laughs> uh, I feel the same way. Not about you, but not me. I feel <laughs> yeah. If I yeah. had his looks and brains, I'd be doing a lot better too. But but uh, listen, uh, until next Tuesday, we, we thank you for being with us, JB. That's and right. we look forward to, uh, to being with you again for an hour or so next Tuesday. And I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to it. Uh, so until then, this is the Christian Underground News Network signing off until Saturday morning. We'll see you then. May God bless and keep you.